Okay, let's keep going then. And let me ask you a question. What is eternal life? If if someone were to come up to you and they know you're a Christian and they say, I, I hear Christians talk about eternal life. In fact, I saw a guy watching a baseball game. He had a clown wig in John 3.16. And I read the verse and it said that if I believe in him, I get eternal life. And so they say, what is eternal life? How would you answer that? How would you define that to them? In the past, these are some of the answers we've gotten. We've gotten it's, it's life with God in heaven. Or living with God. Or a better way of life after physical death. That's really the common theme here. It's after I die, I go to heaven, and I live with God there, and I experience God up there, and it's better. I mean, the streets are paved with gold, so asphalt is gold. Uh, there's no more tears, no more crying, and everything just is, is better. And, you know, for some, it's an all-day sing-song. But that's their idea of, you know, it's of eternal life. It's something better, but after I die. Some have seen it as a fire, fire insurance or a life insurance, which is really a lousy definition of salvation and eternal life. But that's what some have seen it. They just, I don't want to go to hell, so what do I need to do? But then what's their concept of God now? When they're now struggling and they're in sin and they're having problems, do you think they're going to want to run to Father? No, not on your life. So this is a lousy definition of it. Some have seen a life forever or an everlasting life, a life with no end. Now, aside from this life insurance one, the things I have listed up here are, are generally true of eternal life, but they're very shallow. See, eternal life is far more than what we have listed on here. What do we mean when we say God is eternal? No beginning and no end. So, if we were to draw this timeline, we would have an arrow on this side that says no beginning and an arrow on this side that has no end. So, immediately, that's very different than what we had before. Before, we often thought of eternal life as just a life with no end to it. But the reality is eternal life has no beginning to it. Well, that changes things. But let me ask you this. Who has this kind of life? Well, let's read John 1. 1 John 1, sorry, verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 begins, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Who is he talking about? Jesus. And notice it's better to say who than which. In fact, the Greek word that's translated which can be translated as which, what, or who, depending upon the context. So really, a better translation would be, who was from the beginning? Who we have heard? Who we have seen with our eyes? Who we have looked at when their hands have touched? This we proclaim concerning the word of life. He's talking about a person named who? Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 2, The life appeared and we have seen it and testified to it, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life who was with the Father. Well, I want to key in on this, this sentence in red here. Proclaim to you eternal life who was with the Father. Are there any people here, is there anyone here that's good with grammar? As you can see, I'm not. Is there anyone here that's good with grammar? English skills. IR engineer. I saw a little hand. You're now on the spot. It was kind of like everybody took a step back except for you. So let's take a look at this. Proclaim to you eternal life 
who was with the father. Do you remember in school you'd have to you know underline the verb, circle the noun, draw the lines to connect it? If we were to connect the word who to another phrase in the sentence, what words would who be connected to? Eternal life. When I proclaim to you eternal life, who was with the Father? What, or really who, does that make eternal life? Jesus Christ. I want you to begin to see that eternal life is not just a destination. It's not just a, a quality of life. It's a person named Jesus Christ. And that's so important for us to begin to understand because for many people in North America, our concept of eternal life is something that will begin when we die. But if that's my thinking of eternal life, what will I miss out on planet Earth right now? I'll miss out on Jesus. Imagine this. My wife and I, we go to a, um, to a buffet. We're going out for dinner and we go to a buffet and we're, we've been, you know, hungry and just not eating anything all day because we're looking forward to the buffet. And we, we walk in and we say, can we, we had the buffet and they say, no problem. The buffet's over here and they, they bring us some water and we just sit there and we sip on our water and stare into each other's eyes lovingly and, and talk, you know, which is always rare when you have little kids and, and, and just enjoy the nice quiet night. And we're there for a couple hours, never leaving our seat once. And we say, you know what? I say to her, I'm really hungry. What about you? Oh, I'm starving. I haven't eaten all day. Why don't we get out of here? Why don't we go home and get something at home? Oh, that'd be great. Call the waitress over. We pay the bill for the two buffet meals and we leave. Now, aside from hungry, what would you call us? You guys are mean. <laughs> really. Really. I mean, don't hold back now. A little foolish, maybe. No, no. Stupid. Okay. But you're right. I mean, that's the honest truth. You're right. We would be. Because we had the buffet there. Everything we were looking for was there. But we were waiting till we got home to experience it. And for many people, that's the Christian life. Because you got Jesus. You didn't get a bit of Jesus. You didn't get a part of Jesus. You got Jesus. And that means you got everything in Jesus. You got His strength. You got His peace. You got His joy. You got His wisdom. You got His love. You got it all. And it's there. It's the buffet. You lack anything? Go eat. Go partake. But we're sitting at our table waiting to get home to experience all that. And you know what that makes us? Stupid Christians. Your word. Now you're wishing you said silly, right? But that's the reality. That's the reality for many people. They're missing out on what is already available and paid for. It's there. So, First John, well, let's keep going. So eternal life is Jesus' life. It's the life of Christ. And if you have Him now, you have eternal life now and everything in it. You don't have to wait for anything else. I love Ephesians 1 verse 3. It's a good news, bad news verse. It says that, that um, uh, what does it say? Ephesians 1 verse 3. That we have been blessed with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's a good news, bad news verse. Here's the bad news. 
there are no more spiritual blessings to come. None. Do you know why? Because you have been, past tense, blessed with every spiritual blessing. You've got them all. There's no more to come. Here's the good news. You don't need any more. Because you got Jesus. And you got Him now. You have everything you need for life and godliness, it says in 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4. Because we are now partakers of His divine nature, His life. And that's waiting for you and I right now. Does that make sense? So Jesus came that we might have life, that we might have it abundantly. He literally came to give us His life. So let's take a look at the diagram on page 22 then that shows some of the events that took place in the life of Jesus Christ, eternal life. And so we have on this timeline is an arrow on one side for no beginning, an arrow on the other side for no end, but some things have taken place in between. And so this is going to be kind of a Christianity 101, very basic, very simple, but we're going to lay a foundation that we'll come back to later on this evening, okay? So let's start with Colossians 1, 16 and 17. It says, By Him all things are created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things are created by Him and for Him. And He's before all things, and all things in Him all things hold together. So here we see that Jesus made everything for Himself. And He's holding it all together. If we were to give Jesus a one-word job description in this verse, what would it be? He's the Creator. He created all this. Does that make sense? You may want to write Creator under Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Well, let's keep going. Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8. Jesus, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus exists in the form of God. Or simply put, Jesus was and is God. But He didn't regard being God something He had to hold on to, so He did what? He let go. He let go. There are going to be five things I want you to see in these, these three verses. You may want to write them down. Number one, He let go of living like God. Do you realize that? I mean, He could have been up in heaven. He was doing fine up in heaven even after man sinned. He didn't have to come rescue us. He could have snapped His fingers, turned us into all, you know, nothing, and just started from scratch and be done with it. But He said, no, I want to come down. I, me as the creator wants to come as the creation. So when he came and he lived as a man, he stopped living like God. He gave up his rights as God. That's literally what this phrase means by emptying himself. See, how many rights did Jesus hold on to? None. Zero. He could have been born anywhere in any time, and yet he chose to be born in a stable in Bethlehem. And you know where he spent his first night? In a manger. Now for me, growing up in the church, seeing countless nativity plays, a manger is just a nice little crib with straw. It's not that bad looking. But what's a manger? You can see I'm a city boy. What's a manger? A feeding trough. So God, Lord Jesus Christ, spends his first night on earth in a bowl. In a bowl for animals. Do you see what He's done? 
he let go of all his rights. He could have turned to the disciples and say, now you serve me. But who washed whose feet? He washed theirs. He didn't hold on to any rights. So the first thing, he let go of living like God. The second, he gave up all his rights. The third, he emptied himself. And taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man and being found in the appearance of man. Number four, he humbled himself. He didn't build himself up. He didn't protect himself. He humbled himself. And then the fifth one, he was obedient to death, even the death of a cross. A horrible way to go. Do you see his mindset? Do you see his attitude? Can we all agree those five things you wrote down would be true of his mindset and attitude? Would you agree? Well, here's the bad news. Anyone know what verse 5 says? The verse before all this? Have this mindset or attitude that is in Christ Jesus. Meaning, who's to have this mindset? We are. We're to stop living like God. We're to let go of our rights. We're to empty ourselves, not build ourselves up. We're to humble ourselves and we're to be obedient to death. We'll come back to that later on tonight, but I want you to see that's an important principle. I'm sorry, was that Philippians? Philippians, yeah. So that's verse 5 of chapter 2 of Philippians. Okay, in John 1, verse 14, it says that the Word became flesh and we beheld His glory. That just means on December 25th, the year zero, Jesus was born. Give or take five, ten years, right? Um, and months. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it probably wasn't that day. Um, so the Word became flesh. He had a body and He dwelt among us. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, there are three things that I want you to see happen to the life of the Lord Jesus. First is that He died for our sins. Second, He was buried. And then third, He was raised on the third day. So He died, He was buried, and He rose three days later. Amen? Pretty basic stuff, right? Well, keep going. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. And God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Meaning, where is Jesus presently seated today? At the right hand of the Father in heavenly places. So, we've discovered four things about the life of Jesus. He died. He was buried, He rose again, and He is now presently seated in heavenly places at the right hand of the Father. How many people believe that? If you don't believe that, come see me. I have something good news to tell you. But that happened, right? You believe that, right? Why? Did you, did you see it with your eyes? You're right. My, the Bible says so. I mean, I liked one person to answer me and said, My daddy says so. My Father in Heaven says so. That's it. It's that simple. But it's not because I saw it with my eyes. It's not because I feel it in my bones. It's not because I heard the nails go into his into the to the cross. It isn't based on any kind of sensory perception that we have. It's simply based on that's what the Bible says. So anyone remember the bumper sticker they had many years ago that said, "God said it. I believe it. That settles it." Do you remember that? There's one too many lines in that sticker. 
It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. God said it, that settles it. If you don't believe it, that just makes you wrong. That's all. But God said it, that settles it. If you want the third line, then put, therefore I believe it. But we know that this happened to Jesus because the Bible says so. God said it, that settles it. Amen? And by faith, we know that everything in that Bible is true. Right? Stick that in a post-it note somewhere and we'll come back to it. So let's go back to Philippians 2 now. And we're going to read verses 9, 10, and 11. So we just read 6, 7, and 8. And now in 9, 10, and 11, it says, For this reason, or therefore, another translation says. Meaning, as a direct result of what Jesus did in verses 6, 7, and 8, because He let go of living like God, He gave up His rights, He emptied and humbled Himself, was obedient to death, therefore, God highly exalted Him. God raised Him up. I want you to see that the exaltation had to be preceded with the humbling of self. That the way up is first down. That in order to experience the resurrection, he had to first experience death. Do you see that principle? That's why our chart here goes down before it goes up. And so that's the life of Jesus. Now, let's fill in the blanks at the bottom of your page then. So eternal life is not something that began when we became a Christian. When did it begin? When did eternal life begin? It's Jesus. He has no beginning. Right? Instead, it's something that we've entered in which we became a partaker at the moment of salvation. I know my illustration breaks down at some point, but when my wife and I, when we walk into the restaurant, does the restaurant cease to begin, or, or start to begin, sorry, the moment we walk into it? Well, it was there long before we got there. And same with Jesus. Instead, we enter into Jesus, and we now become a partaker of His life at the moment of salvation. And so it's receiving a new life altogether, Christ's life. Sound good? Okay. It sounds good, so there's got to be a but, right? Well, here's the but. When you and I, when we showed up here on planet Earth, were we born with Christ's life? Were we born, did we arrive with eternal life? No. We had something called Adam life. So, let's turn to page 23 of your syllabus. And we see this diagram here where there's Adam, and Adam had the fall. And it wasn't that he, you know, tripped and scraped his knees sort of fall. It's where he sinned. He ate from the wrong tree and was now cut off from God. And then he had uh, generation after generation, as we've talked about. And then who's this person right at the end? That's you and I. So go ahead and write me above that person. And if we did nothing with the, the gospel, with the reality of Jesus, where would we be destined to go? To a place we know as hell. That's just the reality of it. It's a scary and sad reality, but that's the reality. That's the road that you and I were already on towards. Now it says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22, For as in Adam all die. Immediately that is a very heavy statement because we're talking life and death. And it hinges on a simple two-letter word, in. What does it mean to be in somebody? Well, let me start with a very simple illustration. Two months before you were born, where was your life? In your mom, right? In your mother's womb. So when your mom went to the grocery store, where did you go? 
When your mom went to the bank, where did you go? When your mom climbed up Mount Everest, where did you go? I hope she didn't do that, by the way. But, but if she did, where would you have gone? Up Mount Everest. Because whatever your mom was doing, who was doing it with her? You were because you were where? In your mom. Do you understand it? Do you understand the principle of in? It's so simple and so profound. Uh, let me illustrate it another way. Suppose I take this paper and I'm going to put it where? In the book. Now I take the book and I put the book on the chair. Where's the paper now? On the chair. Because it's in the book. I now, and I take the, take the book and I hit John. What did the paper do? It hit John because it's in the book. If I burn the book, what happens to the paper? If I take the book and I put it into a bucket of water, what do I do to the paper? I baptize it. Right? Because it's where? It's in the book. And whatever happens to the book happens to the paper because it's in it. Do you see it? That's the simplicity of the theology of in, but it's so crucial, it's so vital, it's so important. The reason being is, where was your life two years before you were born? Not two months now, but two years. It wasn't a, you know, a twinkle in God's eye or nowhere. Your life was actually in your father. And the reason I say that is because that's what Scripture teaches. In Hebrews 7, 9-10, it says that through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. The writer is referring to an event that took place in Genesis 14, where Melchizedek paid a tithe, paid a tenth to Abraham. And as a result, so did his son, his grandson, or sorry, great-grandson Levi. Because Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had a son named Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons, one of which was Levi. So when Abraham paid the tithe, so did his great-grandson Levi. Does that make sense? There's only one problem with our story. When Abraham meets Melchizedek in Genesis 14, he's got no children. That means there's no Isaac. No Isaac, no Jacob. No Jacob, there's no Levi. So how does Levi pay a tithe before his grandfather is even born? Where was Levi? In the loins of his father. And so remember what it means to be in someone? Whatever they do, you do. So because Levi was in the loins of his father, when Abraham paid the tithe, so did Levi. Make sense? So we could say, whatever happened to Adam happened to me. Because if we go up the family tree... Where are you and I in the garden? We're all in Adam. We could all trace our lineage back to Adam. This is one big family reunion right now. Because we are all in Adam. And so whatever happened to Adam spiritually happened to you and I. Whatever Adam became spiritually, you and I became spiritually. Let's take a look at some verses that say that. In Romans 5, and verse 12, it says, Through the one man sin entered to the world, and death spread and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's not saying all will sin or all have sinned, but all sinned. And the language in the Greek is saying that it's the same sin that Adam did. 
So when Adam ate from that tree, guess who ate from that tree as well? We all did. So when Adam sinned, we sinned. The next verse, Romans 5.15, By the transgression of the one who died. The many. You and I. Everybody in Adam died. So when Adam died, what happened to you and I? You don't sound convinced. When Adam died, we died, and we're now left to our own spiritual resources. Romans 5.18, Through the one transgression, there resulted condemnation to who? To all men. And then finally, when Adam became a sinner, what happened to you and I? We became sinners too. How many sins, how many things did you have to commit for this to be true of you? Nothing. It was simply because you were aware. In Adam. Well, let's get this guy saved because this is rather depressing. So God's miraculous rescue plan is Romans 5, 6, while we are still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He rescued us, it says in Colossians 1, 13, from the dominion of darkness and places us in the kingdom of His Son, in the kingdom of light. And so on page 24 here, we've sort of combined the two diagrams. But what God has done is He's taken us out of Adam and by His doing, it says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, we are where? In Christ Jesus. Now do you realize that for every verse that it says that Christ lives in you, there are ten verses that say you are in Christ. Do you think the Holy Spirit is trying to make a point? And what does it mean to be in someone? Whatever happened to them happens to us. So remember how we walk through the life of Jesus? If we're in Him, then we should see the same thing, right? Well, Ephesians 1 verse 4 says that He chose us where? In Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. Well, now we got a problem. Because just a few minutes ago, we saw we were in Adam. Now we're seeing before the foundation of the world, we're in Christ. Well, which one is it? Because can you be in two places at once? No, you can't. So here's the answer to that question. How many times have you been born? How many births have you had? Two. Your first birth placed you in who? But then Jesus said, as he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And your second birth placed you in where? Christ. Which then raises the question, how did you get the new life. I mean, because you're like a one-car garage. You can only have one life at a time. In order to receive a new life, you have to get rid of the old. So the question is, how did you get rid of the old? Well, let's find out. In Romans 6, and verse 3, he says, Paul says, Or do you not know? Have you not heard? That when all of us who have been baptized, and the word baptized just simply means to be placed into, to be immersed. It's not talking water baptism. In fact, water baptism is referring to this event. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has nobody told you that when God placed you into Jesus, He also placed you into His death? Meaning, when Jesus Christ was hanging on that cross and He was dying on that cross, where were you and I? Hanging on that same cross, doing what? Dying. I want you to see that that cross, that cross of Jesus Christ, is far more than the place where your sins were dealt with. 
Instead, it's where you died, knowing this, our old self was crucified with him. What tense is the word crucified here? Past. Was crucified. You're not in the process of dying. You have died. It's a done deal. See, this truth is so crucial, so important. We'll look at some quotes in a minute. But this truth is so important to the New Testament life that the devil comes along and he twists this. And we hear all sorts of things that simply aren't true. One is that you hear is that we need to die to self. How many people have heard that one? Nowhere in Scripture does it ask you to die to self. I don't even know how you do that. Have you ever realized that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that crucifixion is the one method of execution you cannot do by suicide? You simply can't. I mean, I, I'll give you three nails and a hammer. We got the cross and I defy you to do it. You get the feet, you get one hand, and then I guess you got to throw the hammer up and hope it hits right. You simply can't kill yourself on a cross by suicide. It doesn't work. And so how do you die to self? It's just not possible. I find it amazing that 2,000 years ago, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, do you not know? Have you not heard? Because most Christians have not heard that they died with Christ. Or if they had, they've heard, they heard twists in it, that twist, that deception robs it of its power. They hear things that they're dying or dying daily. How many people have heard that one, that you and I need to die daily? He says it in 1 Corinthians 15, but if you look at the context of it, he's talking about how he faces death every day. He says, I face wild beasts at Ephesus. I'm being stoned. I'm being shipwrecked. That if my faith is useless, then why am I facing death every day? He's not talking about dying with Jesus every day. Because if he were to die every day, then guess who else has to die every day? Jesus. But how many times did Jesus die? One time. So that dying daily is not talking about what we're talking about. It just means facing death. But the reality is, it goes on in verse 4, it says, Therefore we've been buried with Him through baptism of, uh, into death. When do you bury somebody? After they're dead. Our Catholic friends, they have what they call a wake. Because you can't legally bury someone for something like 48 hours after they die in case they wake up. That's why they call it a wake. And if they don't... Wake up, then they bury them. What are they saying? You're gone. Goodbye. And you're not coming back. What did God say to your old man when he buried him? Goodbye. He's gone and he's not coming back. But the idea that somehow we have to die daily implies that the old man has to come back up from the grave each and every day. Well, who's the only person that can raise the dead? God. Well, why would God raise your old man when he went to such lengths to put him to death in the first place? And does he come to life at the stroke of midnight? Or is it just when you go to sleep? And if I stay up all night, then I'm okay. It doesn't make sense. And so the old man isn't coming back to life. The old man isn't in the process of dying. You don't need to die. It's already happened. It's already a done deal. 
That's why Jesus says it is finished. He didn't say it's nearly done. He didn't say it's in process of being done. He said it is finished. So the old man has been crucified and he no longer lives. Got a question? So what does it mean to take up your cross daily then? Great question. Great question. To take up your cross daily is very synonymous to what Paul's going to say in Romans six eleven, which is to reckon, to know, to count on that you're dead to sin and alive unto God in Christ Jesus. So it's to remember the cross, but not to die on the cross because that death has already taken place. We have been, past tense, one time, done deal. So we don't need to continue to die. We just need to recognize the fact that we are dead. It's sort of similar with my wife and I. How many times do we have to get married? One time. But every day, what do I have to remember? Take up my cross. (laughs) That I am married. It's a wonderful marriage. I won't judge your marriage. Okay, Romans 6, 4 and 5, it goes on to say, in order that as Jesus is raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Meaning when Jesus Christ was crucified on that cross, what happened to you and I? We died. When He was buried, what happened to you and I? And when He rose, what happened to you and I? But we rose as someone new and different. How many people have heard the verse, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there's that word again. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. When do we use the terminology passed away? When somebody died. Behold, the new is coming. The new will come. No, the new has come. You and I are now someone fundamentally new and different. Fundamentally different than who we were before. New people. And now God has raised us up. It says in Ephesians 2, 5 and 6, He has raised us up and seated us with Him in heavenly places. So let's get this straight. We've just saw that you died, you were buried, you rose again, and you are now presently seated at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places. Is that true? Is it based on an experience? Is it based on a feeling you have? Is it based on something you've seen? How do you know it's true? The same Word of God that says it happened to Jesus says it happened to you and I. And God says it. Therefore, that settles it. And therefore, I believe it. And so you and I are seated in heavenly places. And that means many different things to me. And I think it's because I was a new father when this began to make sense to me. Is my little girls, if I ever sit down on the floor, my girls don't sit next to daddy. Where do they sit? On top of daddy. On daddy's knee. On his lap. And when they do that, I wrap my my strong arms, wrap them around them, and I hold them tight. And in that moment, how loved are they? How secure are they? How acceptable are they? Well, God's my daddy. And more than just being seated at the right hand of daddy, I think we get to crawl up onto his lap. And he gives us a giant big hug with his strong, mighty arms. How loved are you? How acceptable are you? How secure are you? How worthy are you? 
And you don't have to wait for that to happen. You don't have to wonder, am I going to make it to heaven one day? Because guess where you are already seated? And don't say, my green chairs. You are already seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's a done deal. Because you're in Him. You're in Christ. Look at some quotes of Alan Redpath. He said, how many people have heard of Alan Redpath? Okay. He was a pastor in Moody Church. He wrote, The deepest, most real, most wonderful meaning of Calvary is that not only did Jesus die there for my sins, but I died with Him and in Him. He says, The fact that I died is what's so powerful. Without a real spiritual revelation to your heart of this, you will never be a victorious Christian. Without understanding the fact that you died with Christ, you'll never be a victorious Christian, he says, because inevitably you're going to be struggling to live the Christian life instead of Jesus in you. Look what Dr. J.E. Purdy said. How many people have heard of Dr. Purdy? Okay. Uh, He was a um, man who founded one of the denominations in Canada, and he wrote, The Apostle Paul makes it clear that we cannot sanctify the old man by consecration or by earnestly trying to pound him to death. That's one of my favorite lines. You can't kill the old man by brute force or by effort and by trying. That's not God's way. On the contrary, God dealt with him supernaturally on the cross. You have these quotes, by the way, if you turn a couple pages. He goes on to say, We must enter personally into that which Christ did for us so that we actually partake in our own experience the power of Romans 6, 6. Knowing this, this is a fact, My old man was crucified with him. The fact and personal power of this truth make it the most important truth in the New Testament from the standpoint of the real victorious overcoming daily life. Now we have two men here who have both said that this truth is the most important truth and you'll never find victory without it. But these are just two guys, right? And the thing about commentators, they're just commentators. So maybe these two men are just, you know, that's their opinion. Well, we're 0 for 2, but has anyone heard of the Apostle Paul? Okay, we're on to something there. He wrote a little book called Galatians. Real short, six chapters. And in the sixth chapter, he said, verse 14, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does anyone know what the rest of the verse says? Where the world was crucified unto me, and I unto the world. He says, that's what I'm going to boast about. Not just that Jesus died for me, but I died there on that cross, and I was set free. I was set free from you, and you were set free from me. You no longer dictate and determine my value and my worth. That was settled forever on that cross when I became a new person, a new creation. That's what I want to boast about. That's what matters. That's what counts. Oswald Chambers, he wrote a devotional, and on March 21st it will say, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. He did not say, I have determined to imitate Jesus Christ, or I will endeavor to follow Him, but I have been identified with Him in His death. Meaning, when I see and recognize Jesus Christ on that cross, I see myself on that cross. Once I reach a moral decision and act on it, all that Christ accomplished for me in the cross is accomplished in me on that cross. And this unrestrained commitment of myself gives, God, gives the Holy Spirit the chance to grant to me the holiness, the life of Jesus Christ. So when I remember, when I pick up my cross daily and reckon that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, 
that releases the power of Christ living in me. And then Jesse Penn Lewis said, if the difference between Christ dying for us and our dying with Him has not been recognized, acknowledged, applied, and it may be safely affirmed, that self is the dominating factor in the life of the Christian. If you don't know you died with Christ, guess who's going to try to live the Christian life? You. And it will not work. You will fail. Because you're supposed to. Because only Jesus can do it. And the glory is that Jesus took you and I into Himself, so when He died, we died, to get the old you out of the way, so Christ could now live in and through the new you. That's what took place on that cross. That's why we boast about the cross. It is much more than the place that you are forgiven. It's the place where you are freed from who? Yourself. The old you. My favorite quote is by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He wrote on an exhibition on chapter 6 of Romans. He said, The old man is the man that I was in Adam. That is the man that has died once and forever. This is to me the most comforting and assuring and glorious aspects of our faith. We are never called to crucify our old man. Why? Because it's already happened. The old man was crucified with Christ. Not to realize this, is to allow the devil to fool you and to delude you. If you don't know you died, the devil could come along and get you to live like who? Like the old you. And you wouldn't be any wiser thinking, well, that's just who I am. I guess I'm still that dirty, rotten old stinker. And you'll live like him. And he will fool you and delude you into living like that. What you and I are called upon to do is to cease to live as if we're still in Adam and understand that the old man is no longer there. Well, how do I do that? The only way to stop living as if he were there is to realize that he is not there. If you are a Christian, the man or woman you used to be is gone, out of existence. He or she has no reality at all. You are now in Christ. And if we would realize this as we should, we would be finally begin to live as Christians. It goes on to say we could hold up our heads high, deny sin and Satan, and live. Because the cross has set us free. It's not in the process of setting us free. It has set us free. Because you're not in the process of dying. You have died. And now in Colossians 3 and 3 and 4, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, He's now your source. He's your power. He's your strength. He's your everything. That's who He is. That's who He is now. Romans 6, 8, For now, if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with Him. We shall co-survive, live out of His life. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And so therefore, He's my strength, He's my patience, He's my gentleness, He's my righteousness, He's my wisdom, He's my peace, He's my everything. And on page 24a, you have a short list of all that He is to you and I. So here's a verse that we're going to come back to many times throughout our, our tonight and tomorrow in Galatians 2.20. And it is simply, in my mind, the, the most powerful verse in the New Testament, most practical verse in the New Testament, in the sense that it crams so much into one verse. And it says that I have been crucified with Christ. 
Not that I need to die, not that I am dying, but I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. That old me is gone, but Christ now lives in me. And the life that I now live today, right now, this very moment standing in front of you, I live by faith, by trusting, by depending upon Jesus Christ, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You've been set free. You are a brand new person, indwelt by the life of Christ. Amen. This message was recorded by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know Jesus deeper and disciple Christians to experience life in Him through the message of the cross. For more information about our ministry, upcoming courses and events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www.crosswaystolife.org.